1991, Athens, Georgia rock band, I know some of you are so excited, right? Athens, Georgia rock band, R.E.M., released one of their most popular songs ever called Losing My Religion. Can I just get a maybe head nods from the crowd if you've heard of that song or know it a little bit? Okay, I'm seeing a lot of the younger people I'm noticing are... Well, as a song that grew in popularity, it also grew in controversy. People uh, took the name quite literally thinking it was some sort of anti-religious anthem. But later in his career, Michael Stipe, the band singer, tried to correct this. He reminded those that were not natives of the South that in southern U.S., losing one's religion is a way of saying that they're losing one's temper or not being so civil anymore. And so he says the song was really about a frustrating, unrequited love. Losing your religion, uh, getting um, uh, despairing over a relationship. So it really had nothing to do with religion. But the confusion, even over the idiom itself, I think is kind of revealing. It shows just how highly we as a society value being seen as religious. Historically speaking, being religious has been important always and in all places and in all times. Whether a person is from the ancient Roman Empire or our modern American democratic republic or any other place and any other time, anywhere in between, religion has always, in some sense, kind of functioned as a badge of honor across all civilizations. Adhering to the religion of one state, or the religion of your ethnicity, or the religion of the era has always been a way for us to signal to those around us that we are a functional member of our society. That we are a decent person. That we are a value to the community. That we are a person that's earned their social goodness by behaving in certain agreed-upon ways. Religion, therefore throughout history, has been one of the primary ways that human beings have reveled in their pride. By being religious, we convince ourselves so often that we are much better than the others around us. That somehow they're more immoral, or they're more lapsed than we are, or they're lower caste in a way that we're just not. Religiosity, or so we think, is the way to God. It's the way to salvation. If I'm a religious person, that means I'm good, and that means my future will be bright as well. Well, I love the story that my dad tells. Maybe you've heard this from him at some point, of my great uncle Dwight, who was our preacher in the family. Now, uncle Dwight loved the Lord, and he loved the gospel, And he loved his family too much to not address them honestly as much as they hated him doing that sometimes. So on one occasion at a family reunion, I believe, Uncle Dwight got up to give a speech. He was a commanding figure. So when Uncle Dwight got up to talk, everybody tended to listen. Well, he he got up and, and he started this way. He said, you know, the Stallings family has always been a very religious family. 
And you could see people in the room, Dad says, you could see their, their pride swell and their peacock feathers spread out. But he wasn't done. He says the Stallings family has always been a very religious family. Not very godly, of course, but very religious. That went over as well as you'd expect it would. But when I hear that story, it reminds me, I think, of what the Apostle Paul is getting at here in his letter. In our passage this morning, we see Paul, formerly the esteemed Pharisee Saul, he was uh, the 1% of Israel's greatest religious adherents by, according to his ethnic makeup, his cultural background, his denominational training, his liturgical precision, his devotional fervency. We see that's who he was. And yet, what Paul says about religion seems to eschew all of those things. These are all things that uh, in Jewish culture were things to be proud of. That set one apart as a, a good and upstanding member of society. And yet Paul, when he talks about his curriculum verite, his CV, his resume, he looks as if those things don't matter at all. You know what Paul says instead? of talking, listing his accomplishments, talking about his achievements. He says this, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. All the facets of human religion, Paul says, all the things that we consider to make us superior to others, our country, our party, our alma maters, our tax brackets, our resumes, our families, all of that, Paul says, is a loss. What is of supreme and surpassing value? What is worth the whole world, our whole life, and the whole of everything? It's simply this, to know Jesus Christ. Up until now, Paul has doled out Grace and thanks for what God is accomplishing in the lives of this little Philippian church. Remember, we've talked about this for weeks now. They were once entirely living for themselves, but now they live not for themselves, but for God's glory and for the good of one another. They have been united in faith and heart and mind, conforming themselves to the likeness, not of Caesar, not of self, but of the Savior, Jesus Christ. See, this Christ, this Jesus, is God in the flesh. And when we look at what God does as the the One who is and was and always will be, we see Him come into this world and humble Himself to love, serve, and give, and ultimately to die on a God-forsaken cross. Not for the Pharisees, because they're so good and righteous. Not for the rich people, because they contribute so much to culture. He came and lived and died for sinners. It's by His resurrection from death, however, 
that all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth are being reunited and subjected to Him. And it's why Paul says he's glad to suffer prison chains. It's why Timothy is glad to suffer harsh travel conditions, dangerous roads, unforeseen weather problems. It's why Epaphroditus is glad to endure sickness unto death. It's why everybody that comes to know Jesus and really know Him will put their life and limb on the line so that the surpassing value of Jesus Christ, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings may be known to all. So as we enter now into this third chapter of the Philippian letter, Paul reorients us to the primary message of this epistle. No matter what church, no matter what life looks like, no matter what you're going through, no matter what this, the, the cultural, cultural and social and political circumstances may be in this world, no matter what, rejoice because you have everything and you have everything because you have Jesus. You may have lost favor. You may have lost influence. You may have lost wealth. You may have lost safety. You may have even lost your religion. But, if you have Jesus, you've gained something better than all the riches of this world and every possible world could ever offer you. So with confidence and boldness, not shy, not uncertain, Paul can convincingly say to us, full-throatedly, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you about this again is no trouble to me. It can never bother me to remind you over and over and over again about this Jesus by whom you and I have real, tangible, and everlasting joy. Now, when we hear the word joy, we often think of feelings of happiness and fun and excitement, but we know those are fleeting. My goodness, on some of the happiest days of the year, we get up on Christmas morning and think, Oh, this is going to be such a great day. We don't have to go anywhere. We're going to get stuff. We can eat food and sleep. And in a few hours, that joy is gone. You realize you have to go to work the next day and life starts back over. And you have a doctor's appointment this week. And Joy is not this, this sort of anemic happiness that we have come to think it is. Joy is an enduring sufficient confidence that cannot be shaken by the life circumstances that we go through. But it is a contentment, a hope, a peace, and a comfort knowing that in Jesus, everything's going to be alright. It is no trouble for Paul to write to them and tell them, rejoice. He's not naive. He's not ignorant. He knows what they're going through. He's going through something terrible himself in a Roman prison. 
And yet, he can say with confidence, honesty, rejoice. In fact, that rejoicing, he says, is a safeguard to you. Rejoicing in Jesus protects you, he would have us to know. Now, protects us from what exactly? I mean, after all, Paul, again, like I just said, is in a Roman prison. And they are facing persecution and suffering. So what kind of protection is, is this rejoicing supposed to be? If it's physical or economic or social or cultural, it seems like it's not very good protection. How is joy in Jesus really safeguarding them? Well, how it's protecting them is it's protecting them from being fooled by their imperfect minds, heart, and souls, and bodies into thinking that anything they do or can do or will do will save them. It's protecting them from a religion of self-righteousness. Perhaps the most insidious thing we do as human beings. Immediately in verses 2 and 3, the Apostle launches into this warning against these, this group of unnamed tempters with strong words. We may not know exactly who they are, but we can see that he's speaking of a religious crowd here. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's a bit intense, isn't it, Paul? So who are these people that he's referring to? Well, the way he describes them, gosh, it makes them sound like a band of mutants from... Mel Gibson's the road warrior with their filed down teeth and they look like they're, if you left the band Kiss in the wilderness for about 180 days. That's what pops up in my head when he's talking about this, you know, just sounds like a mutant group of people. But what they most likely are is is something kind of surprising. This is probably the so-called circumcision party. It's probably a group of Jewish converts to Christianity, converts supposedly at least, that insist the only authentic way to be a Christian, the only real way that you're saved is if you keep the rituals of the Mosaic Law. Now this is a battle that is all over the New Testament. As Christ came in and disrupted everything these people thought they knew about their religion and about God and themselves. There was a time in early church history where transferring their religiosity into real spirituality, real faith in Christ was, was a complicated thing. And we see in Acts 15, the apostles shoot down this idea of uh, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus kosher, Jesus plus Sabbath equals salvation. So this is at the first Christian ecumenical church council. And they come together and meet for the sake of us Gentiles. So most of us I, here today, I assume, are from Gentile, that is non-Jewish background. We didn't grow up with the, 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 uh, the Mosaic laws and, 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 and uh, rituals and, and strictures and things like that. And so for us becoming Christians, to be told that the only way you can really be a follower of Jesus is if you also keep this kind of cultural, ethnic code that you're 
not used to is a problem for the apostles. So they fight that. They say, that's a heresy. But unfortunately, even after Acts 15, it seems to be a heresy that keeps raising its ugly head. It's this idea that insists that if Gentiles don't keep Sabbath, don't rest on Saturday, if they don't eat kosher, that is, um, if they don't eat only clean foods, if they don't take the sign of circumcision in their bodies, at least the male part of the population, that Jesus really doesn't love them. That He didn't really come and live and die and rise for unclean people like them. That they won't ultimately really be saved because they haven't done enough. Paul has been in the trenches fighting this ideology for years. And it's something that gets particularly nasty in the churches in the Galatian region of of Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey. And so as Kent Hughes colorfully comments, Paul unleashes a flamethrower on these Judaizers when in Galatians 1.8 he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a gospel of faith alone, by God's grace alone, that it is not, um, uh, it is not perfect doctrine or perfect works that save you, but it is Jesus Himself that saves you. If anybody preaches anything differently to you, a curse be upon them. May they be cast down into the lowest of low hells. Again, strong words from the apostle. And that is why Paul calls these so-called Christians who claim that we are only saved by what we do, that's why he calls them dirty, low-down street dogs. That's why he calls them masochistic flesh mutilators. That's why he calls them disciples and workers of evil and iniquity. Now I get the feeling here that the apostle is pretty serious about this error. I don't think he would be speaking so flippantly or so casually about people in this way. But something about thinking and teaching and living as if your religiosity can save you is detestable to Paul. See, keeping kosher, let's get something straight. Keeping kosher is not a bad thing. Following after the, 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 the guides that are given in the Old Testament about how to eat clean and unclean food, that's not an evil thing. But saying that it saves you, Paul says, makes you spiritually unclean like a jackal, like a garbage eating dog. In the ancient world, they didn't keep dogs as pets. They didn't keep Fido with a nice little red bandana and take pictures at Thanksgiving and put them on their Christmas card and send them around. No, dogs were scavengers. They were trash eaters. They were, you know, they were not a part of common or polite or proper society. And so the irony is, Paul says, if you think you're saved because you don't eat shrimp, you're just like a dog that will eat a, a, a dirty piece of trash that it finds out in the street. 
He goes on. Now, taking the mark of circumcision isn't a bad thing. But saying that it saves you is spiritually synonymous with being a flesh mutilator or a butcher. Saying that you're saved because you took any particular mark on your skin is like carving yourself up with a scalpel, something out of a slasher horror movie, and saying, I'm saved because I've carved these sacred rituals into my... Paul is saying that's the, that's the absurdity of saying that what you do saves you. See, do you see Paul's point here? Living by your works, even if they're good works, living by those things to save yourself is actually evil. And here's why. Because it relies on the false gospel of self. Because it relies on the fact that you save yourself and it's not actually God that saves you. You become your own God. If you live according to your standards, if you think you're good enough, you become the arbiter of truth and doctrine and goodness. And that's why it's evil. Because it puts God in, in, a, in a little box that you tick off and it makes you the king or queen of everything. So any Christian today, now we don't probably have problems with Judaizers. People that say, well, you know, unless you go to church on uh, Saturday and you don't, mow the lawn that day, then that's the only way you're saved. We don't encounter that as often. But, any Christian that might tell you today that you're saved, or that it's the Christian thing to do to vote only for this person or for that party, anybody that tells you that you're saved by what you don't drink or eat or smoke or watch, Anybody that tells you you're saved by how much money you donate or how much time you volunteer or how often you read the Bible or come to church or even pray, anybody that tells you that is lying to you. Our works, as it turns out, can only condemn us. They can never save us. But, here's the good news. And I am assuming you're here this morning because you want to hear good news. Amen? Amen. The good news is that we are saved not by what our flesh has done, but by what God's own flesh, the Lord Jesus, has done for us. And what He has done for us, He does in us too. Paul says now in Jesus, we are the circumcision. Not the outward religious marker that can only take place in a male body. But what Jeremiah gets at in his prophecy, the inward circumcision of the heart. See, that was the point of the sign of circumcision all along. It was an outward symbol meant to show an inward spiritual reality. And that's what God is after. We heard in the Old Testament, 
Man looks on the outside. He looks on, uh, uh, he looks on people and, and judges them based on their beauty or their strength or their talent or their wealth. But God looks on the heart. What's happened inside the heart? And so Paul says, we have received that circumcision, all of us, male and female, who trust in Jesus. We've received the spiritual circumcision of our hearts. We are the ones, Paul says, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Not by our own wisdom, not by our own wit. We worship by God's Spirit. And we boast not in our works, not in our doctrines, but in Christ Jesus. And we don't put any confidence in our flesh. Only the flesh of a Savior nailed to a tree for us. We boast in who, Maranatha? Christ Jesus. Not our flesh, not our action, not ourselves, and certainly not our religion. Now, if that was a viable path to salvation, to be religious, the author of our letter here could have relied on. If anybody could have ever been saved by their religion, Paul says, I think it's me. Listen to his resume here. You know it well. I won't belabor this for too long. Verses 4-6. through six. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, if anybody thinks he can rely on his life, what he's done, and his mind, and his body, and his soul, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day. He's got the liturgy down before he even was cognizant of what it was. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe, the esteemed tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law of Pharisee. One of the most stringent denominational parties in Jesus' day. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Oh gosh, how we Christians need to hear this today. We think zeal is just talking down about every heretic and blasphemer out there and that somehow honors God. But see how Paul talks about that. Nobody had more zeal and talking about the truth and routing out the bad theologians than I did. How many of these uh, discernment bloggers today that love to stir up trouble, how many of them have said they can, they've grabbed women by the hair and thrown them into a jail cell? Paul said, I did that. In regards to the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. If Paul were a Baptist, he could outshine all of us. He never missed Sunday school. He regularly taught Bible study. And he kept the church grounds. He led the music. He kept the books. He preached regularly. He chaired all the committees. He evangelized every day. He wrote apologetic books. He spoke at conferences. He went on mission trips. He volunteered at the co-op. He organized VBS every summer. And he came from a family that did this too. If anybody could be confident they were going to heaven because what they've done, it was Paul. But verses 7-8, through 
everything, all of this that I thought was a gain, everything that I thought was a credit to my account, all the investments I made in my salvation are actually a loss. Because the greater gain, the only gain worth having is Christ. Knowing Him as King and Lord and Savior and friend. See, because of Jesus, Paul says he has suffered the loss of everything he once relied on. He had put all his eggs in the Jesus basket. He didn't keep anything behind and the, the, you know, little investment in being a Pharisee, little investment in being a, 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 a citizen of the Roman Empire. No, he put every chip he had Put that into Jesus. And he's lost everything because of it. He is not relying on his good works. He's not relying on his Bible knowledge. He's not relying on his fervent persecution of the church. He's not relying on anything he's done. All of that is a loss. And he shocks us by saying it's all a bunch of dung. The actual word he uses here is so impolite. It's an actually, it's an expletive. Paul curses in the Bible. Something I'm not supposed to say in front of our children and certainly not from a pulpit. But Paul says all of the stuff I relied on, forgive me parents, it's BS. And if Paul says that about his good works and beliefs, imagine how he'd assess us. Nevertheless, the point is this. It's not about what you can do or what you have done or what you could be for God. It's never about that. It's about what God has done and is doing for you through Jesus Christ. That's what it's always been about. Don't find your righteousness, church, in your religiosity. Find it by faith and a faithful Lord. Don't even rely on your faith, really, I would say, that wavers and sometimes you're faithful. Rely on the faith of Jesus, who was faithful for you. Let your goal in this life, Christian, be the same as the apostles. Maybe this can free some of our burdens today. Some of us who feel particularly down and depressed because we know we ought to be doing better, religiously speaking. We know there's sins in our lives that we're too embarrassed and too ashamed of and too addicted to at this point to think that we could ever get over these things. We know how we've failed as parents and spouses and as, as, as people. We know that. So let your goal in, in life be this. Not about what you could do. But let your goal in life be the same as the apostles. To know Jesus personally, experientially, relationally, 
actually in the power of His resurrection. Put all of your focus into knowing Jesus. Invest only in time with Him. It's like the, the quote we have on the, um, on the slideshow from C.S. Lewis. He says, come to Jesus. I'm paraphrasing. Come to Jesus. And you find Him and along with Him, everything else. See, come to Jesus and all those things that you worried about in your life, your place in this world, your dignity, your value, all of that will get sorted out in Him. But come to Jesus. Know His power of the resurrection. Know that He triumphed over sin and death. Something nobody else has ever done. And it is now yours by your union with Him. Know Jesus too, also in the fellowship of His sufferings. That He lived a sinless life and suffered to save you from Satan and hell and everything else. And so now as you live in Him and you share in His hardships, through hardships of your own, that you may find in Him that you have gone from enemies to friends. That you've gone from war to peace. That you've gone from sickness to healing. That you've gone from poverty to sufficiency. That you've gone from despair to hope. From shame to absolution. And from death to life. And so, church, my final word is this. If Jesus is truly all your hope and stay, if He is where you rest when you are weary and heavy laden, well then I suppose it just might be a good thing after all that you're losing your religion. Let's pray. Father, help us now to find true and lasting joy in this Jesus. Let us rightly assess even the good things in our lives, even the gifts of Your kindness and provision as losses compared to the value of knowing and loving Jesus who first knew us at our worst and loved us anyway. Let the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings transform us into people of great faith and hope and love. For we ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus alone. Amen.